Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, July 10th, and we're talking about more consolidation in the meal delivery space and a potential subscription offer from Twitter. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's head honcho of Ho Humness, Brian Faroli. <laughs> Who would have thought that uh, your, your title would be the part that I would say cleanly on that introduction? <laughs> <laughs> I had a very productive uh, vacation last week, Dylan. I thought of new titles for myself to keep you busy. I'm a huge fan of alliteration. I think it, it leads to some fun. Uh, it reminds me, for any viewers of BoJack Horseman, of the type of uh, dialogue and thoughts that go into that. Um, Brian, fun stuff going on in the news this week. We've got some, some interesting stories that are really covering spaces we've talked about so many times. This is now going to be the third time we've talked about the meal delivery space in as many months. And that's because, as we thought, consolidation has happened, though perhaps not the way that we originally expected it to. Yeah. In this case, we finally got the news that Uber is making a move to bolster its Uber Eats property. Uh, A few weeks ago, we were talking about the potential rumors for Uber to be buying Grubhub. It turned out that JustEatTakeaway.com came in and swooped away Grubhub for about $7 billion away from Uber. But Uber appears to have got some redemption earlier this week. Yeah, they agreed to buy Postmates in what is roughly a $2.5 billion deal. Brian, I think JustEatTakeaway.com is very close to head honcho of ho-humness in terms of mouthfulness <laughs> and toughness to get through. For people not familiar, just eattakeaway.com is uh, primarily in Europe. They're in some other markets as well. Um, so they scooped up Grubhub for over $7 billion as kind of a way to enter the U.S. market. And I think looking at the last couple of weeks, if you're Grubhub this worked out pretty well for you. The original considerations were Uber possibly buying Grubhub for about $6 billion. They wound up getting even more than that from this foreign investor. Yep. They got it. They ended up squeezing out a $7.3 billion valuation. So kudos to them for hanging in there, toughing it out and squeezing out, hey, an extra basically billion dollars for their shareholders. Yeah, nothing to sneeze at there. I'm sure the shareholders are happy. Um, With Uber, that kind of put them in a spot where they did not have a dancing partner. And we were, you know, kind of operating under the assumption that there was going to be consolidation in this space for a long time. It seemed like the economics would only support a, a more consolidated meal delivery market. We got the news this week that they are buying Postmates for $2.65 billion. This is an all-stock deal supposed to close in Q1 of 2021. Um, and as I understand it, they are going to be operating two kind of independent standalone apps. So it's not like all of Postmates is immediately going to be folded up underneath Uber Eats. The plan is for these two things to continue to operate on their own. We have leadership from Postmates staying on. Um, in some ways, a little bit of a bolt-on acquisition, although there are clearly some synergies here, Brian. Yeah, and that's the plan as it exists right now. You never know what's actually going to happen once two cultures are mixed together. It's possible that Postmates and Uber have such different cultures that the CEO of Postmates, um, he's decided to stay on, or at least he says he's going to for right now. It's possible that might not be the case over the long term. But I do like the fact that 
Uber is saying, allowing Postmates to operate independently. Postmates is having some success that uh, Uber doesn't appear to want to mess with, uh, at least on the consumer-facing side. So I like that decision. Yeah, and as is always the case when we get an announcement for a deal, this is subject to regulatory approval. And so uh, the regulators are going to be taking a look at this one. And I think this is probably a more palatable deal than had Uber Eats bought Grubhub when you look at the way that market share plays out in the space. And we can kind of dive into that a little bit more. But I think that there's probably going to be some questions around, you know, is this the most competitive thing? Is this fair? Uh, I believe the consolidated Uber Eats Postmates business would be about 35% of the overall uh, meal delivery business, but would still be second place to uh, DoorDash. Yeah. I, I don't think regulators will give this too much of a too much scrutiny, as you mentioned. DoorDash, DoorDash which acquired Caviar uh, a few years ago away from Square, is currently the market share leader. Kudos to them for doing so. They have really taken market share over the last couple of years, uh, both organically and through acquisitions. But DoorDash is currently the number one player with a 45% market share. Uber Eats is currently 28%, and Postmates is 7%. So them tying up would only be the number two player. If they went ahead with Grubhub, Grubhub is currently 17%. So that would have pushed them to number one. So I don't think regulators will give them much pushback here. But who knows? They're regulators. (laughs) It's worth emphasizing as you run through that list of all the different people playing in the space, how dramatically it has changed over the last, we'll say, five or six years. Because uh, if you were to have looked at market share, we'll say in like 2015, 2014, I think Grubhub would have been the runaway winner. Yeah, that's correct. Grubhub was the top dog in the space for many years. They were also happy to make acquisition after acquisition and to consolidate their leadership position. That's when I became a shareholder a couple of years ago. I thought that they had an unassailable lead. Um, but as we've talked about the show before, boy, did I get that wrong. And boy, has Uber Eats and DoorDash really taken a significant amount of market share away from them over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think there's a good lesson there. And like, even if you're a market leader, if there's someone who is willing to light money on fire to disrupt your business, <laughs> it's going to be really hard to maintain that position. And and that is kind of the interesting element of this market because, you know, Grubhub was a public company, and the the incentives are going to be a little bit different for a public company. Uh, businesses that are venture backed are private, are still in hyper growth mode, like DoorDash was. Um, I think venture capitalists are going to be willing to let them accumulate market share on the prospect of you know making it up on volume at some point and then being able to raise prices as they control a market a little bit more than maybe some public investors would be for a stock that's on the exchanges. Yeah, and that's something we've talked about in this space before. The economics at the unit level really do not work yet. This is a low-margin business for a lot of uh, restaurants and the prices that these meal delivery companies are charging really make it really challenge uh, the economics of the entire structure. So with so many um, so many competitors out there, each vying for market share with VC funding, as you as you pointed out, just willing to burn and burn and burn through capital in order to capture market share, consolidation was inevitable. But even with this consolidation, it's still hard for me to call this market attractive as an investor, given given that the economics are still very challenging. Yeah, I think it's kind of curious that if you look at where DoorDash is now, they just raised about $400 million for an implied valuation of about $16 billion. 
Well, if you go back and look at Grubhub uh, at peak, um, and this is you know where there was more competition coming into this marketplace, um, they were worth a just over twelve billion dollars. And so the the industry leader um, in an industry that uh, we're talking about all these problems with is already eclipsing the valuation for what was the industry leader. Uh, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it does tend to rhyme, Brian. <laughs> yeah, and and to Uber's credit here, I'm sure they're assuming that. There will be synergies, and they will be able to capture ever more market share by by going through with this deal. And Uber Eats has really been um, kind of a star for them in the last couple of months with their traditional ride-hailing business under so much pressure uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, but Uber Eats itself is growing fantastically uh, well, o- over 100% revenue growth uh, year over year in the most recent quarter. And it's starting to take up a sizable account for a sizable portion of Uber's overall revenue. You know, ride-hailing is still the lion's share leader at 75%, but Uber Eats is quickly catching up to uh, over 25%. And if this deal goes through, it could, at least according to the CEO, accelerate their ability to get to profitability. They, they, he made that very clear as part of this deal that they're going to get to profitability next year. Now, he didn't go into details about what profitability means, because profitability means different things to different people. And Uber's financials right now suggest that they're nowhere close to profitability. I mean, $14.5 billion in revenue over the last years, and operating loss was $8 billion. So that's a heck of a lot of ground to make up in, in less than a year. Yeah. And, and for the most part, that cost is getting eaten away with research and development and what we're seeing in terms of SG&A, which is, you know, for the most part, going to be their administrative stuff, but also their marketing. Um, R&D, obviously, a huge part of this business because for all the different places they're playing, autonomous driving is an important tailwind and will dramatically change the way that these businesses operate, might even make them financially feasible. It's possible, and Uber is putting capital behind that, but I view the autonomous driving network as a massive threat to these, to these companies. I mean, Uber has, you know, has relied historically on humans to drive back and forth. Once an autonomous vehicle uh, network is out there, why would, why, would, why would a company like, say, Tesla, which is pushing towards this, why would they need Uber as a third party? Why couldn't they just offer it themselves? You could say a very similar thing for Waymo, which is uh, Google's uh, autonomous uh, taxi uh, service that's out there. So Uber has to put money into these programs if they hope to compete. And from what I've seen, they're still pretty far behind in that race. So I view this as a massive long-term risk to the business. Yeah, they have to put the money there. And when you look at the people they're competing with, I mean, you know, Alphabet doesn't need to win autonomous driving. Uh, at least the way that I look at their business right now and the way that I look at the thesis. You know, you could argue that Tesla might need to win autonomous driving, but they make great cars that people seem to really love. So they can probably continue to thrive even if they aren't the first person to autonomous driving. They have the brand strength there. I think ride hailing hinges on being able to be at the forefront of whatever people are doing. I think that's completely right, which is one big reason why I have just steered clear of Uber and Lyft since they've come public to say nothing of the challenging economics they're already facing. Yeah, it's it's a tough landscape on all fronts. I, I look at this and I think this is a very hard business and the it doesn't really matter which way you look at it, whether it's ride hailing or the meal delivery stuff, 
it's tough. I think at least with this acquisition, they are committing to diversifying out their revenue streams a little bit, moving away from being so reliant on ride hailing, which is important given you know how disrupted that business has been by COVID-19. They've seen a huge drop in uh, the number of rides and, and really what's going on there. Um, I think it's worth looking a little bit at the Postmates side of this and what it brings to the table. We don't have a ton of information on that, Brian, but um, what I have been able to put together is that this business did over $100 million in revenue in Q1 2020, likely benefiting from a little bit of a spike related to kind of the anticipatory parts of, of COVID and people beginning to stay at home, being a little bit more resistant to going outside. Um, they offer Shopify and Square integrations so that people can work uh, delivery into their businesses, which is kind of cool. Uh, I think that, that that's kind of an interesting element of this. And one thing that I think kind of gets missed when we talk about Postmates and some of the optionality within the meal delivery business is we think of Postmates as food delivery, but it also has this delivery as a service element to it. And in addition to, I think, what you and I recognize as, you know, we we order something, they are on the hook for bringing it to us, um, and we're ordering it through them or, or using them and very obviously using them. They also have this white, la- white label delivery as a service option. And so if there are retailers that want to offer very quick delivery, possibly same day delivery or next hour delivery, something like that. Postmates offers that, and it's within the skin of that retailer. You almost don't even realize they're using Postmates. And so this is something that is really helpful for last mile, really helpful for getting stuff to people quickly without those businesses having to build out the infrastructure themselves. Yeah, that's a very attractive uh, part of this acquisition and probably the thing that pushed Uber over the edge here. So their delivery as a service, retailers can partner with Postmates to provide, as you said, same-day delivery of certain items to within a uh, local geography. And if I was a retailer, I would find that to be incredibly attractive uh, to help me compete against Amazon or or Walmart, which are pushing very hard to uh, up their delivery game. And if I could offer same-day delivery on items in my store to, say, within a few miles of my store, that can help me to fend off that competition. And Postmates is a company that does just that. And it's also worth uh, pointing out that last week, Uber made a push into this market too. They launched their grocery delivery, uh, a grocery delivery service in both Latin America and Canada. And they I did say that the U.S. will be following on there. So that to me is a natural extension of Uber's network as they exist today. And that should excite you if you're an Uber uh, shareholder. So helping and partnering with small or even big retailers that want to add this service to me is a great, uh, great use of their networks. Um, we've talked a lot about how this is this is a tough market. And, and that's why you know I think I've stayed out of it. It seems like it's why you've stayed out of it. It's worth emphasizing that these are challenges that Uber is going to have to fix. Um, and then, you know, I mean, Just Eat Takeaway is probably going to have to fix it in the United States. Um, DoorDash is going to have to work through this too. It doesn't, doesn't really matter who's operating. The reality is you have a lot of companies that are jockeying for control. Almost all of them are losing money. The restaurants are operating on pretty thin margins and they are paying pretty heavy fees in order to get their food delivered. The relationship between restaurants and these meal delivery apps are uh, a a frenemy, maybe might be the most generous way to put it. You know, Um, there are some practices that these apps do that is not very restaurant friendly. And um, that continues to be a story here. And the people that are actually doing these deliveries aren't getting paid enough. Um, You know, so it's not really worth their time either. I don't know what the magic 
magic bullet is for making this work. Um, I I think maybe we're closer to the economics being better because there are less players. But ultimately, I think that means prices are going up. That's exactly right. I think they're going to have to eventually. Consumers have basically been subsidized subsidized by venture capitalists um, for for years, and and they're used to it. And it's hard to judge what kind of impact that would have on demand if fees all of a sudden rose sharply. You can say the exact same thing for the ride-hailing business too. It's uh, From what I've seen, the economics there are not all that great either. So it's possible that fees might have to rise uh, for consumers on, on that side of things too. How that ultimately shakes out, it's really hard to say right now, but I do believe that consumers value these services and that they should exist what that market looks like and what the end price is for consumers uh, versus what they are today, that's really hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm curious, Brian, we knew that consolidation was going to happen. This is kind of an inevitable part of this business. I mean, almost everyone in the business was talking about how it was going to be happening. You, know, you can parse different uh, management commentary and see that this was going to be something happening over the course of 2020. Do you think this is it? Do you think we've gotten to the point where all of the players are the players and it's going to be these big three? It's going to be DoorDash, the combined uh, Uber Eats plus Postmates, and then Grubhub with the backing of Just Eat Takeaway? Or do you think there's more activity to come? Uh, More activity to come wouldn't surprise me. I mean, again, as we've pointed out, the economics do not really work currently. So that's going to tell me that consolidation is going to continue to happen until they do work out. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me to see even more consolidation in the future, but I think we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning right now. <laughs> that sounds grim <laughs> for this futuristic and wonderful space that we're watching. I mean, it's convenient. If nothing else, it's convenient. We'll give it that. Um, all right. The, the second news item that we want to talk about, Brian, is Twitter potentially rolling out a subscription element to its service or its platform. We are kind of operating on very little details here, but every now and then a job posting goes up in the tech space that raises some eyebrows. And that was the case this week. Yeah. So Twitter put out a uh, job posting for a senior full stack software engineer uh, to be part of a new team, which is codenamed Griffin. And Twitter said that it's building out a quote unquote subscription platform, one that can be reused by other teams. And this is a first for Twitter, exclamation point. So, you know, it's a big deal, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I love, like, I think one of my favorite parts of the tech industry is seeing how people look at career postings, look at LinkedIn profiles, and try to understand where businesses are going. This is such a large part of uh, kind of understanding the stuff that's under the hood that maybe we don't get in a lens into otherwise. And this is a particularly interesting one because... Um, We've seen some traction for this type of offering out in the wild. It's it's not like other uh, platforms haven't explored subscription options. Twitter hasn't, but um, it is it isn't exactly here what what it might look like. It's not necessarily that we'd be paying to use Twitter uh, rather than being ad supported, but it does seem to offer some interesting monetization opportunities. Yeah, the the posting did say that it's going to be working collaborating closely with the payments team at Twitter, which. Payments and Twitter might make a whole lot of sense, especially with Jack Dorsey also happening to lead a company called Square that knows a little something uh, about payments. Um, I, we've seen kind of a whole bunch of reports out there that are speculating at what this could mean. Uh, could it allow uh, Twitter power users to monetize their followers? 
kind of like uh, Patreon or Substack. That could be interesting. Uh, could it be a subscription service that helps uh, marketers or journalists or professionals uh, to gain some kind of additional insight uh, into Twitter or, or even be verified as, as real? Twitter uh, shut down its verification program uh, a few years ago, the little check mark that you get. And I would personally love to see that come back, uh, at least in, if it wasn't in the same way, in a, in a different way uh, to help people get verified uh, on Twitter. But this, if, if this report is true and, and this becomes something, this would help Twitter to build out a third leg of revenue. So currently they, the, they get most of their revenue from, uh, uh, from uh, advertising. That is the majority lion's share of revenue. And that business has really slowed down with COVID-19. So while the total number of monetizable daily active users, basically people that are capable of seeing Twitter's ads, rose 24% uh, last quarter to $166 million. Um, Revenue only grew 3%. And a big reason because of that was because ad revenue uh, only grew 1%. So that's a mismatch between ad revenue and monetizable uh, users. Now, the second le- the second stool of their re- revenue is from data and licensing. And that's actually a pretty sizable business. That actually grew 16% last quarter to $125 million. So a not insignificant part of the total if they could add a third leg to that to be some kind of subscription offering and it had any kind of success, that can really make a bull case running Twitter stock. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you know, you mentioned that there are some struggles there with advertising and COVID, but this wasn't exactly a business that was lighting the world on fire with its revenue growth prior to COVID. I think one of the things that has always kept me on the sidelines with Twitter is for an ad-based business costs per engagement have always been falling down. You know, this is this is kind of one of the core things you look at because if you're an ad-based business, you can basically move the needle one of two ways. You can show more ads or you can collect more money for every ad that you're showing. Ideally, both of those things are going up. Uh, in Twitter's case, most of the revenue growth has come because they've been able to find ways to create more monetizable activity, whether that's increasing the ad load on the site or getting people to spend more time on the site, which is great. Those are things that you want with a platform. Unfortunately, that's been basically covering the fact that their cost per engagement has been down year over year pretty regularly. And that, that to me says that Twitter ads aren't quite doing what they need to do. Advertisers aren't seeing the value. And when you have folks like Facebook and you know Alphabet's Google out there, they're going to put the money there instead because it's more effective. That's always been my problem with Twitter too. Uh, I'm a power Twitter user. I'm on the platform every single day. However, I go to Twitter to engage with other people. When I see an ad, it's intrusive. It really subtracts from the experience. And I don't have all of my personal data on Twitter. So Twitter is only using my tweets, I'm guessing, to, to serve me up ads. When I compare that to something like Facebook, Facebook to me is a much more monetizable platform than Twitter. I can see the same about a number of Google's properties uh, too. This is a big reason why, Dylan, I'm such a big bull on Pinterest. You knew I was going there, didn't you? (laughs) You can't help yourself, Brian. (laughs) Pinterest is a platform that people go to and ads actually are a part of the experience. People want to see pretty pictures and use them to take action. That to me is a very monetizable uh, thing, a very t- monetizable platform when compared to something like Twitter or Snapchat or even something like any other messaging platform like WhatsApp. I don't view messaging as a platform that is as easily monetizable as other forms of social networking. But 
if Twitter can, again, build out a robust subscription platform that makes more use of their, their audience, that could be something that's worth paying attention to. Yeah. And, and, and the financial part of that is true. And, and I think it does add um, you know, another interesting revenue stream. And, and I have to think that subscription revenue, you know, even if they're just taking a little bit of that to facilitate, is going to be relatively high margin for them. That's, that's an easy thing for them to roll out. Jack Dorsey has payments experience and expertise. Uh, they're going to find a way to make that work if they want to make that work. An important element of this too, I think though, is if you are thinking about platforms... Twitter is a very valuable platform because people that matter are on it. And there are communities that are important. And what we've seen with a lot of major platforms, I think Snap is a really good example of this. Um, you know, Vine is a really good example of this. And Instagram, of course, great example of this, is influencers and people that have clout are going to go to spaces where they can well monetize that clout. And if you're Twitter, I think you want to make sure that people that have huge followings um, are tastemakers on the platform, have a lot of tools to make their influence worth their time, because otherwise they might explore other platforms and some of that network effect that Twitter enjoys could go away. I think that's a completely fair point, which is why when I heard about that they're integrating so closely with the payments team, I think having some kind of Patreon-like feature on there where you can tip or provide bits or something like that uh, to your favorite power users, that could be very attractive and really help to bring key influencers back to the platform uh, because they'd have an incentive to. So this will be a very fascinating story to watch. Yeah. So it could be a financial thing, could just be a strategic thing in terms of maintaining their audience. Because, you know, we've talked about it, the, the member growth or the user growth for uh, Twitter has not been crazy. They've kind of hit their audience uh, in a lot of the key markets and more or less stayed there. Um, the people that are on Twitter are pretty much always there. <laughs> like, you know, we're not, we're not getting a lot of people um, going over that hurdle that, you know, Facebook has been able to, uh, to get people to do. Um, and so at that point, you kind of have to work with what you got, you know, all the, all the tools are on the table. You got to figure out how to make a valid business out of it. Yeah, that's completely fair. And by the way, if you are in the financial community, Twitter has become the platform for communication. So if you're not on there, join, it's actually really good. <laughs> yeah. Brian, what's your handle? Uh, at Brian Feraldi. What's your handle, Dylan? I am at Wiley Lewis. And, and I will say, I'm going to make this note. If you follow Brian Feraldi on Twitter, make sure that you are not following an imitator. I know that Brian <laughs> has run into some issues recently uh, with some folks thinking that his online presence is so fantastic that they just wanted to copy it themselves. <laughs> Thankfully, that, that uh, imposter was removed recently. But uh, yes, uh, make sure you get my handle. <laughs> <laughs> to your point about verification, though, that, that's an important thing. Exactly. I would happily pay to be uh, a verified and get that, get that check mark. So there you go, Twitter. Monetize me. <laughs> well, I am happy to have the true and verified Brian Feroldi on this episode of Industry Focus. Brian, thanks so much for hopping on and helping me. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Have an awesome weekend. You too. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're everywhere. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. Until next time, guys, fool on. Fool on.